I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we'll take a break from um, our book of Genesis. It's where we've been in the past few um, weeks. We, we normally try to move our way through a book just cautiously, uh, carefully, and paragraph by paragraph. But we're going to take a break just to remind ourselves of the, the day that we're celebrating uh, Resurrection Sunday. First Peter chapter 1. I just want to read the verses 17 to, to 19. We'll come back to the larger passages in a little bit. But verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but from the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the most precious thing in the universe being sacrificed and being spilt out on that altar for us. Lord, what a, what a lofty thought. What a weighty concept. Lord, may we grasp those truths today. We pray that they would have its, their impact in our life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage that I just read, just a few verses there, the key thought, the one key thought, that you, and you probably picked up on this, is the word redemption, ransom, or redeem. It's those who are redeemed. You were not redeemed with perishable thing. Redeemed. And it means to buy back. You, you probably know a, a, a lot of about the word. It's not a common word that we use. It's mostly we would use the word salvation. We would use the word save. But really a more biblical terminology would be uh, redemption. Um, it's a more biblical term. But we would, it would be synonymous for, uh, with salvation. Um, redemption is kind of a big picture word. Redemption is also a deeper, richer word for salvation that we see in Scripture. Now, if there's one thought, one major theme of Scripture that would pull the whole of the 66 books together, that all 40 different authors would have in mind here, over the 1,400-year period of time that the Word of God was written, there was one common purpose, one common theme, it would be this idea here that it would be the the redemption of man to the glory of God the redemption of man to the glory of God that would pull from uh, the, the whole Bible pulled together from Genesis to Revelation one central theme one idea that's the key idea that we're want to focus on today the redemption of man to the glory of God if you want to sum up the scripture 
Now, I, I want to review that theology with us. Normally, I go through one passage, and we will. We'll, we'll go through one passage. But I want to I develop the richness of this theology before we move into that passage so that we can understand that passage more clearly. Now, the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Genesis. And we've seen, in the book of Genesis, the beginning of this spiritual war that's going on that we see today. We saw the first of it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And uh, in that little verse, we see that God is speaking to Satan. He's under punish, punishment. And God is essentially drawing the battle lines of this war, this spiritual war. And... Adam finds himself right in the middle of this battle. He was placed in charge. He was appointed by God to rule and have dominion over this earth. And, of course, Satan swoops in and deceives Eve and Adam. And, and they, become, uh, they join the, the rebellion against God. Satan is on the attack. He, he is the, on the offensive here. God is the offended party and the war has now started. The battle lines have been drawn. Man essentially is sold into slavery, into sin. He, he's joined the rebellion, if you want to call it that. And he's under the guidance leadership of Satan himself. Um, now, the first glimmer of hope that we have is in this verse, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This first mention of, of a redemption. This is the proto-evangelium. This is the first glimmer of hope that, that man could possibly be redeemed. That man could possibly be brought back or bought back and saved from the situation that they find themselves. And this is exactly what we see. Let me read the verse, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, singular, will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the hill. Now, this is the first mention, like I said, of being able to be redeemed, that Satan will be crushed uh, by a redeemer, singular, one person is going to come and redeem. Now, here's the amazing part from this whole story, is that God is going to take from uh, among those rebels and produce a godly seed. That's amazing to me. The most unlikely source, right from the, the rebels themselves, those who have been deceived and turned against God. He's going to bring them out of their sinfulness from their rebellious condition. And he was going to make himself a, a seed, an offspring. Not so much a biological line, but a line of, we might say, discipleship. A line of ideology, belief system. Those who would trust God. It would be built upon truth. Not so much biology, but truth. A people that would be loyal to Him. And they're called the redeemed. They're called redeemed throughout the whole of Scripture. The redeemed. Now this is, there are several families in the Old Testament that are marked out and stand out of, uh, that are kind of showcased, you might say. 
from this uh, list of redeemed people, starting from Seth to Enoch to Noah. Of course, we know Noah was was uh, used by God to survive the flood. He was redeemed, if you want to say that, out of that. Job, Moses, Melchizedek, David, Daniel, these godly men. And there were two characteristics, godly men and women, I might say, there's two characteristics that, that distinguish them, these, this group. Primarily, they had faith and they had righteousness. Faith and righteousness. And that faith and righteousness demonstrated their love for God. Demonstrated their love for God. And it produced a lifestyle. Now think about that. They, they had faith and trust in God, but it, it produced a lifestyle within them of holiness, a, a way of living that was consistent with the very nature and the very character of God. And it distinguished, it distinguished them out from all of the rebels, set them apart because it set them apart because they had a, a new nature. Because it was inconsistent with the old nature. Now they have a, a new nature. And they're the remnant. The redeemed. The, the minority, if you will. And that proved, that proved that God was working in their life. This, this uh, way of life, this faith and, and righteousness, it proved that God was supernaturally working in their life. And producing within them a family resemblance. The, the very nature and character of God. A family resemblance there. That we look like God. We take on His characteristics. And this, this is a sign of the redeemed. A sign of redemption that God is working in their life. Amazing. Abraham and Sarah was part of that. One of, one of those families. And he, God focused on them and promised to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make a, a blessing. I'm going to bless the whole world. And that's exactly what he did. Out of that one family, he produced a nation, he even brought them out of slavery and to influence essentially the whole globe, the Jewish nation, Israelites. They received the word of God. He gave them the privilege of living under his wisdom and the life-giving commands. We see that in Deuteronomy 4. He was he had blessed them with land and prosperity and material blessings. They became the envy of the world. And we wanted them to succeed. We wanted to see them just flourish. God himself came and he lived among them. Also, God said, he promised Abraham that I will, I will produce a redeemer, a Messiah through your seed, through your, this group of, of people, through your family, a redeemer. He's going to be the one that would crush Satan's head. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the, it will come from your lineage. And he was going to bless the world. And as much as we wanted to see Israel succeed, and we're rooting for them, they, of course, failed. They failed. And God removed His hand of blessing from them because of their rebellion. And essentially, the whole of uh, the nation caved to the pressure of being like the other nations 
We see the same thing even happening for us today. People cave because of the, the pressure. And Israel caved. They wanted to be like the other nations. Instead of remaining distinct from the other nations, they, uh, they essentially joined the other nations. God scattered them. Israel rejected God and His grace to them. And they gave up that family identity. They gave up that family resemblance. But, even though Israel had rebelled against God and they were in that sinful state, God kept His promise. Remember? God kept His promise. To send a Redeemer through them. And that's exactly what He did. And when He did... They were blinded by their own rebellion. They were blinded so much so that they failed to recognize their Redeemer. When He came, they they didn't even recognize Him. In fact, as a whole, they hated Him. Not the remnant, not the redeemed. They recognized Him. But but as a whole, they they used the the Roman system of death and, and they got rid of Him. They crucified Him. But, but... In his death, in that one act of crucifying him, of of putting him to death, that one act became the means of our redemption. That's That's the whole climax. We see that it was in the plan of God all along to deliver this crushing blow to Satan. And that's when it was. It was right there. The pinnacle of history was right there when Christ was hanging on the cross. And we see the power of God demonstrated right there that He can redeem men. And the climax is when Christ rose from the grave. He came out of that tomb. Death could not hold Him. And so what looked like dark days for God and that Satan was winning really became a day of celebration. A day that we celebrate even 2,000 years later. The, the debt that we owe was paid. Our Redeemer paid that with His very life on the cross. The firstborn of God. And He hung there and He said, It is finished. What is finished? The redemption of man. Redemption of mankind. It is paid. It is completed. And that ushered in, of course, a new covenant. A new testament. God was no longer working through Israel, a nation. He was now working through a remnant that He would call out from all over the globe, all over the world to Himself. A new entity called the church. And that that becomes the, the title for this redeemed people, the church. And they had some of the same characteristics. They had faith in God, a hope that would not die. They had a love for God that was shown in their obedience to Him and their loyalty to Christ. They had a love for His Word. They had a love for God's people, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. They were drawn to the truth. And that became a stabilizing factor in their life. So much so that they could could take the abuse of the world the opposition of the world, and stand and stand firm. They were driven by a respect for their Heavenly Father, a fear of God. They were driven by an appreciation of Christ, their Redeemer. 
And they take on the same characteristics, the very nature and the very character of God, the same family resemblance, you might say. These redeemed people began to look like their redeemer. That's the point. And God would take up residence, not in a temple, but in their very heart, in their very life. And they are now born again, given a heart of flesh, taken out the heart of stone. And like Nash, not like national Israel who had a heart of stone. These, these new, this remnant, they had a, a heart of, of, uh, flesh. And they were the redeemed. They were the redeemed. What's the process of being redeemed? God the Father would call them. They hear the voice of their shepherd and they, they gravitate toward that voice. They, they hear it and they move toward him. And he receives them and, and gives them over to Christ, their redeemer. And they willingly submit to him. They have a new capacity to do that. A new heart to be able to, to do that. A, a non-rebellious heart, you might say. And the Son, of course, receives them and He begins to build His church with this remnant, with these redeemed people. The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, we might say, He comes and He resides in them and they become, and He becomes a pledge of their future redemption, a final redemption. And someday, what's going to happen? The Father is going to indicate to the Son, the Son's going to go down and get them and receive them. There's going to be celebration. And we're going to rule with Christ someday until all of His enemies have been placed under His feet. In fact, all of His enemies are conquered. That's a day what we, the day that we look forward to. Even death itself will be conquered. And He proved He could do it because He is the Redeemer. And we will be then taken up with Him, those who are in Christ, those who have submitted themselves to Him, and we will be become one with the Father. And I want you to see this. I'm going to look at it a couple of verses. In John chapter 17, this is what Christ prayed. Here was Christ's prayer. Now, if, if Christ, if any prayer is going to be answered, it's going to be Christ's prayer, right? The very Son of the Father. He says this, that they may all be ones, talking about the redeemed, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe. He says, he prays, O Lord, bring them into the, the fellowship of the Trinity. Bring them into that shared unity that we have. Folks, that's amazing. It's amazing that... that Humankind, any man can be brought into that close fellowship. But that's what Christ prayed. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see that this is promised what's going to happen. In verse 28, it says, When all things have been subjected to Him, that's Christ, then the Son Himself. So, so we, we submit ourselves to the Son. The Son then embraces us. And He takes us. And it says, He submits himself, he subjects himself to the one who subjects all things to him, 
so that God may be all in all. Those who are in Christ, Christ takes us and he himself submits himself and puts us with the the Trinity, the triune God. And the triune God embraces us and brings us into that close union, that fellowship. And we become then the, the visible, even with a new heaven and a new earth, a visible display of an invisible God. Taking on the very character, the very nature of an invisible God that can be seen and displayed for throughout all eternity. That's the redeemed. Those are the ones that God is working in their life today. So, starting in Genesis, we see that God promised to redeem mankind. He has seen, we have seen in the Old Testament that He redeems mankind. And we see that even today that he continues to redeem mankind and he will do so until he comes back to receive us. God is in the business of redeeming man. God is in the business of redeeming man. The family business, Christ said, I must be about my father's business. God is in the business of redeeming mankind. Now, let's ask this question. How does that affect you? What do we do with that? That's information. In fact, you know all of that. That's not any, anything new. If you're a believer, you, you have some grasp of those truths. How does it apply to us? And now turn over to 1 Peter again. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see how Peter applies this idea. Chapter 1, I want to start now in verse 13, and we'll read down to verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Gear your minds. Get ready. And he is, again, appealing to the mind, the thinking part of us. Keep sober in spirit. Be, be sober-minded. Keep a fixture hope. Fix your hope completely upon the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself. Also, as all of the, in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You say, Peter, we've tried that. We see the standard. We understand the standard. It's up here. It's holiness. It's perfection. It's what God, the way God lives. And Peter says, you need to live like that. You say, Peter, we can't. We can't. We want to. The desire is there. The flesh is willing. Or the the spirit is willing, but the the flesh is is weak. Peter, how do we do that? And he gives us some indications here. And I want you to see how he applies, applies the redemption. He connects redemption and our sanctification of how we are to be holy as our Heavenly Father. And this is, I believe, the missing link, folks. So often we struggle in the Christian life to be holy. How do we do that? How do we do that? Let me finish reading verse 17. If, if, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the 
time of stay. Submit yourself to the Lord. Fear, fear God. Do what He's called us to do. Peter, how do we do that though? And here's the key. Verse 18. Knowing. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, the key word here is knowing. Knowing. The first word, I would encourage you to underline it. I circled it in my Bible. The first word in verse 18 is knowing. That's a participle. It's a, a constantly knowing, a constantly keeping in mind. Now, there's a whole range of knowing, isn't there? I, I can uh, have information, and I can know by somebody telling me just information, or to the other extreme, I can know by experience. And we see that's the way the word is used throughout Scripture. There's the information. I, on one hand, I, I can know 2 plus 2 is, is 4. I can know that the Steelers are the best NFL team, right? You can have that information. You can see how it's used on, on Scripture here. We, we have that information. We know. Or we can know as we know a person. That's the way it was used here. I, I know the UPS guy when he comes. He and I recognize each other. I, I know him, but you know what? I don't know him that well. But, but I have a, a recognition of him. I know my kids, but I know my wife. I know my wife. And Peter denied knowing, didn't he? He denied knowing Christ. He said, he says, I don't know that man in Mark chapter 14, verse 71. And Matthew chapter 7, he says, I Never knew you. And that's kind of scary. He says, I didn't have an information about you. And this is when Christ, people get up to the, the throne of grace and he says, depart from me because I, I never knew you. Didn't have that intimate relationship with you. It's the same knowing here. It's a wide range. We can know a skill. I can know how to drive a car. I can know how to mow my lawn. I can know... How to use a chainsaw. Christ said, you know how to analyze the weather. So there's a skill that we can develop in, in, in knowing. There's the, the fourth way that we know is personal experience. It's something to experience standing on the beach, right? It, it's an experience. You see the, the, the waves coming in. You see the vastness of the ocean. You see that you feel so small and you see the... Maybe the crowds of people, you feel the, the sand. I, I, I can know, have the experience of preaching. We can know what it is to live in West Virginia. Paul says, I know how to be poor. There's, there's a knowing of experience. So there's a, a wide range here of this knowledge. From just information all the way to experience. And that's the purpose. Because it encompasses everything. The baby Christian over here, just information, just coming into the kingdom, not knowing a whole lot, but it's going to, moving toward experience, knowing with experience. From the baby Christian all the way to the, the spiritual fathers that have walked with God. 
and experienced God's faithfulness in their life. We see this in 1 John chapter 2. There's knowledge. That's the key, folks. That's the hinge of the door here. This passage hinges on that. The, the knowing. That's the connection between the, the, the spiritual world and eternal life down to the holiness that we live out in our life. It's the knowledge. Knowledge. In fact, Christ said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. He goes on to say, this is, uh, this is eternal life that they know you. That's experiential knowledge of you walking with you. John chapter 17. Now, here's the point. Shallow, we have a shallow salvation today, folks. We have a shallow salvation. The, the, we have a Christianity that really, I'm not even sure if they understand salvation. I don't know, I'm not sure that they understand the depth of redemption. All they know is they've got a ticket to heaven. I'm not going to hell anymore. I'm going to heaven and I, I'm saved and that's what they know. But I tell you, I tell you this, shallow knowledge Shallow theology equals shallow living, shallow lives, and shallow worship. That's what we see today. The hinge, folks, the hinge between uh, redemption and sanctification here is the knowing. Do we know what God has done for us? Do we have that experiential knowledge of what God has done? The world knows that it's Easter, right? You can go into Sam's Club. You can go into Walmart. In fact, right after Christmas, man, it's Easter time. They start putting the Easter stuff up. Well, maybe Valentine's Day in there somewhere. But you know right away, Easter's, Easter's here. But they don't know about Easter. They don't know about redemption. Our holiness is hinged, folks, on knowledge. And, it, and we have to, to keep in mind, this is something that he, we are to continue to know. He says, knowing. And the more we know, folks, the deeper, the deeper understanding of our theology, the greater our worship, the greater our um, sanctification, our life of holiness that we, can, that we can live. There's a growth there. From just information all the way to experiential knowledge of walking with God. That's what Peter wants us to know. Knowing. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Like silver or gold. But from your futile way of life. Inherited by your forefathers. But from the precious blood as a lamb unspotless. Now let me ask a few questions about this passage just quickly what's the missing link it's a deeper theology first of all who did christ pay the redemption to who did he pay it to there was uh, when the uh, iron curtain came down there's a lot of pastors that came over from the uh, from russia and they did not know, they did not have a, a deep theology. They came and they were interviewing Dr. MacArthur because he was able, they were able to broadcast uh, uh, his preaching into Russia. So, and one of the questions they asked him was, was, who did Christ pay the redemption to? And they had the idea that, that Christ paid the redemption to Satan, that somehow God owed Satan something. That's not at all true at all. No, 
the, the redemption was paid to God Himself. He was the offended party. He was the one. It was His holiness that was violated. His sense of righteousness. His standard. And we see there's a, a scripture. It should be on the, the board. Romans 3.23. We have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the standard. The very glory of God has been violated. His righteous standard. His righteousness. And who, who fulfilled that? Christ Himself. He, he says in verse 18... He says, the, the spot, I mean, verse 19, the spotless lamb, unblemished. There was no sin in his life. He matched that glory, folks. He matched that glory. He lived that righteous life for us. Amazing. God's standard is our standard, folks. Holiness. Holiness. Be holy as he is holy. Not our comfort, comfort. Oh, I feel like a good person. I feel pretty good. Or our sense of self-righteousness. No, His holy standard. That becomes our standard. His holiness is our standard. Number two, there's another question we have to ask. What are we redeemed from? What held us? What are we redeemed from? And the one word answer is our sin. Our sin. Not the law necessarily, not our own body, but our own sinfulness. We were enslaved to sin. So you can see on the board, there's three parts of this. We are saved from the power of sin. You you can see the references there. Sin had us in its clutches. We We were slaves of sin. But now, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, submit ourselves to Him. Sin has no power over us. Romans chapter 6, very, very clear. We're saved from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Death. Christ conquered that. We're no longer facing eternal damnation away from God. It's a gift from God. And then the presence of sin. Someday we're going to be away from even the presence of sin. When we live in a new heaven, a new earth, there's not going to be any sin there. There's nothing, folks, then, of of applying this. There's nothing that holds us back from pursuing righteousness. God's holy standard. Now, we need to see salvation is like this. This is what salvation is. It's not just free, uh, get out of jail free car. Not just get out of hell so we can go to heaven. It's really not about that. It's about living the righteous life. About living the righteous life. We're freed up now from sin to live the righteous life of the redeemed. That the redeemed of the past have lived. With faith and righteousness. Taking on the very nature and the very character of God. The very family resemblance. The holiness that we are to live up to. We're free to do that. That's amazing. It's a lifestyle that is consistent with the family resemblance. Let me ask one more question. What are we to know? What are we to know? I want to fill this out a, a little bit more. In verse 18 he says this. Knowing, knowing that you were not redeemed, but you redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Peter's point is that we need to know. 
We need to understand the depths of of this redemption. We need to understand the cost of of this redemption. And he says we need to keep it in mind. Knowing it's a constant thing that we continue to focus on. Continue to look at. The cost that God's God's, uh, uh, redemption cost him. First of all, there's a, a few things I want you to see here. Number one. That this is this is pre-planned. You can see this in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-three. That this was in the plan of God all along to crush or, or to to kill His own Son. It was pre-planned. Your redemption is is pre-planned. Number two, you need to understand the extent of this sacrifice that God made. God made this. He gave His only begotten Son. Right. That whoever believes in Him. Number three, and that's, by the way, a demonstration of love. We need to understand the cost of this, and that's the precious blood of Christ. Christ stretched out his hand, his arms. He hung on the cross, and his blood drained out of his body. It shed. That was the cost. And Peter says, you need to know that. You need to understand that. The, the only Son of God. And the blood that He had. It was a sacrifice for us. Now, one last thing that we need to know is the context. And we see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That's amazing, folks. That, that should leave us spellbound. Even when we were within the camps of the rebellion... Rebelling against God. He died for us. Now that's an act of love. That's an act of love. It is. It's an act of love from God. So the question is, is do we appreciate that? And I think that's where Peter is going here. You, you need to appreciate what God has done for you. Every time you sin, you have to step back and you have to ask your question. Is that worth it? Was that worth the blood of Christ? And the answer is no. And then we need to live out that appreciation. We live out that appreciation. We don't live the Christian life, folks, by some strict standard. Here's what we've got to do. We've got to do this. We check all this strict standard off. We've got to check off this list. And that's... No, we live our Christian life out of appreciation for what God has done. And that appreciation comes from the knowing Having a a rich theology of knowing what God has done for us. And if we don't know that, we're not going to live that out, are we? If we don't know that, we're not going to apply that to our life. In fact, if we don't focus on that, what's going to happen is we're going to struggle with our sin. We're not going to connect us being holy as He is holy with with our righteous life. And, And the... The redemption that we have in Christ. We're going to struggle with our sinfulness. Number two, we're going to just live a, we're going to live a shallow life. Shallow Christian life. If the Christians at all. And number three, we're, we're going to lose that information. Eventually we just forget. And what we do is we kind of just drift. And the result of that is we became, we become more anxious. We become more anxious. We know God has demands on our life. We don't know what they are. We just don't pursue those things. We, we, we don't appreciate what God has done for us. And we become more anxious. And then we begin to look 
for other, uh, to other places to fulfill that anxiety. And we look to the world for, for peace. And we look to the world for comfort. And, and it's like, no, we need to understand what God has done. We need to understand the grace of God in our life. If we don't, folks, ultimately we'll lose that distinction, just like Israel. We lose that distinction, that family resemblance. They're not, they're not like God at all. We lose that family resemblance. So, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Let me ask you, how are you going to apply this to your life? Peter says we need to understand, we, we need to know the sacrifice, the depth at which Christ went to, to pay for our redemption. And he says, when you understand that, you're going to be able to work that this holiness out into your life. And then we can be counted among the redeemed. Where we can say with Job, with Job I know that my Redeemer liveth. Or we can be encouraged by the words of Satan. or of, I'm sorry, by encouraged and exhorted by the words of David when he says that let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Folks, we're redeemed. We're redeemed because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to stand up and be counted among the redeemed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is is a heavy, heavy message. But Lord, Your glory is worth it. Your glory is so demanding on our life and we are to be holy as You are holy and that's not left up to chance. But Lord, it's left up to our knowing. Help us to know the riches of Your grace. Help us to know the the redemption that we have in Christ. Help us to understand the sacrifice that was made, the, the blood that was shed for that sin that we so so easily enjoy, just like the rest of the world. Lord, help us to know that is sin is paid for. We are, we are bought back from rebellion against God to family with God. Lord, we thank You for this picture of redemption that we see in Scripture. Lord, may we live these things out in our life. May we be about our Father's business. Living out a redeemed life of faith and righteousness. And then, Lord, may we stand. May we stand in this day when there's a, there's a, a need for Christians to stand and, and declare ourselves with the redeemed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.